Hi everyone, welcome to Morning Matcha. Today's guest is Anya Kemenitz, who's an NPR correspondent and an author of several books. Her latest one, which is Art of Screen Time. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? Doing well, thanks. So fun to be here with you. Yeah. And get to know you and know that you know Julie and <laughs> you guys go way back and I feel like I already know you. <laughs> But I really want to get started with, I mean, you've done so many incredible things just sitting here talking with you for a few moments. I have so many burning questions, but I really want to know what you did before becoming an author and what you were interested in and what you studied in school and... Sure. Um, well, I, you asked me before and I'm kind of like, well, it's just kind of always what I've done even when I was a little kid, but my parents were both writers. Mm -hmm. Um, my father's a poet, my mother writes fiction. And one of my earliest memories is kind of, um, helping out my mom by like, there was a, a paperback book, which had like the list of all the places that would publish writing. And she had me like circle all the places that paid more than five cents a word because wow. <laughs> that's what it cost for like fiction in the 1980s. Yeah. And I was like, Oh gosh, I really want to do this too. Mm -hmm. And it was just kind of, it was, that was what my family did. So I was interested in writing in, in college. I really fell in love with journalism. I was an English major. I took psychology classes. I took Russian classes. Um, I was interested in the brain, psychoanalysis and linguistics, but uh, in my spare time, I was working on the college magazine and I was so fascinated with how you could get into a real world story and with people's real lives and how everyone would want to know about it. Like yeah. the news is different from, you know, um, from fiction or literature, literature is so beautiful and wonderful, mm -hmm. but you're always like working really hard to get people to notice it. I yeah. feel like with media to a fault, people are like paying attention. I know. It's interesting. Yeah. The psychology behind it. I'm sure you've looked into that. Yeah, definitely. So figuring out, you know, how to write about things that are happening now and, and what we know and research and, and pull it all together into a narrative. That's kind of what I'm, what I'm always working on. Mm -hmm. So your first book you wrote right outside of college. Yeah. Um, generation debt. So mm -hmm. I was at the village voice and I had a mentor there and she really was interested in the, what she called the economics of being young. This idea that everyone was kind of, they, we still were millennials then it was like people born, you know, starting in 1980 yeah. or whatever, uh, how millennials people kind of got, were hard on them because they were living at home and they weren't starting families. And it was like, it must be their character. They don't want to grow up. Mm -hmm. And actually there's this whole other story, which is the rising cost of college, the changes in the job market, the growth of, of debt, student debt, credit card debt. So I kind of became out there and I realized, you know, the power of telling the story that I had the economic numbers to back it up and to say, Hey, we're not who we, th who you think we are. Like we have a lot more to offer. And it's just that the system was not set up to invest in the future. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was, um, th that went from a column to a book, uh, and you wrote the column where in the village voice okay. and the column for about a mm -hmm. year in the village voice. And I had, um, the book deal came together really quickly. I wasn't oh. really prepared for it. Um, it was published when I was 25. So I was really, um, very fresh mm -hmm. and, um, it was terrifying a little bit. I had a lot of imposter syndrome cause I felt like, um, yeah. Who are you to, yeah, to, to get out there. But at the same time, I knew that I had a grip on the, on the facts and that, you know, this wasn't a story that everyone was telling. So, um, so as that was published, I had a chance to then get out and travel around the country and, and go to college campuses and meet with students and talk to them about their loans and 
you know, give some financial advice for a little while. It was like, oh, maybe you'll be like, you'll do personal finance mm-hmm. and you'll be like the next Susie Orman. Like mm-hmm. I actually for a while yeah. was like in a lineup with Susie Orman, like in Yahoo Finance columnist. And wow. I was like, this is great, but it's not really my path. I don't really want to just give advice. I want to continue to probe ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I started writing more about technology and innovation, social entrepreneurship, um, you know, went out as a journalist. And when was this? This is the mid to late 2000s, 2006, 2010, 2010, I came out with my second book, which was all about that convergence. It was about what's happening in higher education to address the crises of cost, quality, and access. Mm -hmm. Can we have, we have an information revolution. Can we have a a learning revolution, a knowledge revolution? Mm -hmm. How can people, um, you know, educate themselves and educate each other when the, when the institutions are failing? Um, so that was DIYU. Um, so right around the time when like Tom's came, like Tom's shoes, like social entrepreneurship was getting. Yeah. 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 There was a lot of social entrepreneurship stuff. There was a lot of people questioning. I mean, just a couple of years after the financial crisis, yeah. that was so phenomenal. I was working at seven world trade center then. So I was like wow. watching out the window of like the rebuilding the nine 11 site, but also it was by Goldman Sachs and Bear mm-hmm. Stearns, you know, and like all the, like all the financial institutions just crashing around us. Mm-hmm. I also was there too. When like occupy was happening, it was like around the corner from wow. my office and I would be there like back and forth on the way to work. Um, so it was, that was really crazy times that we're in. And you just look back on it, the historical context, it makes a lot more sense. So much more sense. Um, what do you think it caused the the colleges to become so expensive. Well, <laughs> tell me everything <laughs> in like two sentences. Yeah, no, I know, kidding. right? No, no, no. So, so education. Um, most a lot of things in our economy have gotten cheaper because of globalization and mass production and technology. But education and healthcare are two different two exceptions. Performing arts is also in some cases an exception. All of those things, what they have in common is they're produced by people with a lot of education. They're labor intensive. And the people who are working, a doctor, a professor, they've been to school for a long time. Yeah. So you can't lower the cost. You can't cheap it out. You can't like subcontract out to China your professor. Mm-hmm. Like you need someone who's in actually in that job who knows what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's resistant to cost um cost structure changes. Also there are subsidies. So because you can borrow money to go to school, you know, if, if we didn't have to, if we had to just pay cash for college, people would walk away. You know, you start, you raise the price to $30,000. People are like, I'm sorry, I don't have $30,000. I would really like to go to this college, but I don't have that money. So I'm not going to pay you. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, well, I hate that I have to do this, but I'm taking out this loan. So I, I will do it. I'll Mm -hmm. mortgage my future because it's that important to me. It's important to my family to do it. Mm -hmm. And so it puts people in this really tough position because you're making a bet on yourself. You're essentially, you're literally mortgaging your future. Mm -hmm. Um, and the cost continues to rise because states don't have to pay for it. Um, they can, they can put it off into students for tuition. So yeah, those are a couple of the reasons. And then you get out of school and the reality is most people don't find a career with the, with, um, the major they were studying. Is that what's happening? Well, the structure, the whole job market's falling apart. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, there was a, there used to be sort of a compact, like, okay, so big economic history, right? used to be there was people had like more or less cottage industry. Like you grow subsistence farmer, right? Then you may be like an artisan and like this, this village makes wool and this village makes wood and you Mm -hmm. trade, right? And people are, nobody works for wages. People work for themselves Mm -hmm. and they work in their households. 
Then comes industrialization. People are working like wage labor, right? So a certain amount of time, you trade for a certain amount of money. Um, And then that system kind of grew and became more prosperous. And then there was like this compact between like labor and business and the government where it was like, well, we'll take care of you. You take care of us. Mm -hmm. So now there's health, you know, and that wasn't, it didn't, it wasn't so smooth. It was like, there were all these strikes, right? There was, there was the labor movement at the turn of the century. There was the um, farm workers movement in California, People like went out and demanded and then, you know, the eight hour day, the weekend healthcare, all of this was created through these like system of agreements and protests. Um, Then it started to fall away apart again. We had this deregulation movement in the eighties. Corporate corporations don't have to take care of their workers anymore. They can ship jobs overseas where there's such a lower standard of living. They haven't industrialized yet. So they're willing to take it. Um, the compact falls down. It's like, oh, now we're outsourcing. So we've got contract labor and it's temporary. We don't have an investment in you as a person. Did you ask me for like global economic history? No, of like I'm a, like, of like centuries in the past. I feel or like can we like skip past the 101 that? is what I need. <laughs> oh my God. But okay. So, so that compact has disappeared. And in fact, what's happened instead is that um, corporations have unprecedented power in politics. They can put all this dark money in and they shape the entire landscape of how we think about these things the taxes, the regulation, they put this guy in, in power who can, you know, ab- abolish all the regulation. They're, they're systematically dismantling all the regulations. Um, you know, they're raising up the taxes. They're taking away all the taxes that the corporations pay. So this is like, this is the the long-term dream, but it's very short-sighted. Because, yeah, so short-sighted. Because corporations run on people. We're all, it, everything is people. Everything mm-hmm. is human capital and not just capital, but everything is human. And there's no, it's not a long-term play. We've, I... I want to stop there really quick. I think that's such an important topic to touch on because I think in our world today, we see all these incredible businesses being marketed a certain way and we only see the outside and we see this beautiful aesthetic and you forget there's people behind that. There are people that are making this happen and and everything's so automated and we don't even really like call anymore. We can just email when we have an issue or yeah. go chat online, which is super convenient. But then we forget and we think, oh, everything's um, a robot. And in a sense it is, but there are people still that work there that, and they make errors and it's great. Like, I don't know, you just kind of coming from someone who started a company who yeah. you think is this like the way it's supposed to be? Is this professional? What's it really supposed to be like? Well, you, it is supposed to be however you want it. It's your company and you can make it where, however you want it to be. But mm-hmm. I just find that's really interesting because we forget there's people behind everything. Definitely. Yeah. It's one of the things I find. It's almost like a little meditation that I carry with uh-huh. me. You know, I think about, um, for example, you know, they never stop painting the Golden Gate Bridge. Mm-hmm. Like literally once they finish painting it, it's time to start the other oh side gosh. again. Because there's so much fog and rust. Yeah. And so that bridge that we look at as being like this timeless icon and landmark that she doesn't change. Actually, it's constantly remade by the work of everyone, of hands. And it's so, it's just so much devotion and mm-hmm. care. And that's true of everything around us. Mm-hmm. I love that. I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, I want to get into all your, all your books sounds so interesting. I want to read all of them. Great. <laughs> um, but I want to talk about how technology has played a role, not just, I want to talk about the everyday lives and finding a balance because that's important. I know that's what you dive into, but going into how that's changed 
the work environment. Obviously, it's automated things. Um, but again, it's it just ties back into children, too, yeah. because it's like you want to limit their screen time. Or for me, I'm um, preparing to become a mom and I'm I'm like, I don't want my kid to have a screen for a really long time. But then are you holding them back from their future because their future depends on their ability to understand this technology because it's changing rapidly? So this is, this is the question that started the journey of my book, the art Mm -hmm. of screen time. Um, We have to remember how new this is that we're, we're less, we're 10 years into the handheld device revolution. Yeah. It's crazy. Not even 10 years when it comes to the iPad, right? 2010, Mm -hmm. it was introduced. So, the notion of a, of these handheld things that are around us that are on the scale of a small, tiny child that they can hold and that they can interact with and that they're instantly so enthralled with the fact that they can it's so intuitive to them mm-hmm. um it 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 just stops everyone in their tracks like it's the first time you see it the first time you see a baby interacting with a touchscreen device you're just like whoa like what did we create here because they're it's such a natural marriage and they understand it so in- well. Um, and then we have to figure out, okay, are we ho- like, we don't want to hold back that evolution, but we also don't want to just, um, there's so many like scary ways that it can go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what I've come to pay the most attention to is, you know, we can use our devices to connect to people all over the world mm-hmm. and to bridge all these gaps and we also use them every day to hide from the people that are closest to us. Yeah. That's what, we're, you know, it's tragic. Well, it's just ironic. I mean, it's a, tra- it's, it is tragic in the sense of like a tragic flaw, but it's also, but I think the, the, the core thing that I think that need, that people need to get insight into and forgive themselves for is the fact that it's very hard to be intimate. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be in, in, in relationship and to be together with people mm-hmm. all the time. And so we're trying, we, we're looking imperfectly for that moment of retreat mm-hmm. and we land on the device and the device becomes this like wicked portal into whatever your distraction of choice might be. And, mm-hmm. you know, and I want to honor that if particularly for mothers and children, we have like a long and very storied history of how wonderful it is to be together and how hard it is to be together mm-hmm. because it's a consuming relationship, unlike any other, especially with a small child, their demands are endless mm-hmm. and they're very physical and they want, you know, they start with taking over your entire body, mm-hmm. <laughs> then they take over your life. Mm-hmm. And so I think what a lot of us mothers and also for myself, like what I'm doing when I reach for my phone is I'm, I'm looking for a connection to a part of myself that I have to put down when I'm with my children mm-hmm. and to figuring out to ma- how to manage the balance between presence and space is what I'm, is what I need to, that's exactly the nexus mm-hmm. of, of the challenge there. Yeah. And I wonder what else, what have you learned about people through studying this? Because another thing is what are we getting from it? I want to dive into loneliness mm-hmm. um, and feeling alone or, it could be two different things, but yeah, with technology or social media in general, what have they learned? Cause you get like a hit every time someone likes something or yeah. it's, it's crazy cause you're being <sighs> validated. Right. So there's all these different basic drives, right? So, um, one basic drive is for approval and mm-hmm. connection. Mm-hmm. Another basic drive that was actually was one that was identified later. There was a psychologist called Jan Pangsep 
And he basically identified that like there's food and sex and, and things that we crave, but then there's seeking itself. So like seeking is a basic drive, the notion of looking for a reward. Mm-hmm. And the dopamine is really associated with that. So like mm-hmm. endorphins are associated with getting the reward, but dopamine is associated with the seeking of the reward. Oh, okay. And for being in, a pre- in the presence of a potential reward, that's something that you like in and of itself. And like, even if you, and it's almost, it's just, it's so like Buddhist, right? Cause it's like the nature of like, desire is always renewing itself. Mm-hmm. And even, even if you're in bliss, part of you is like, what's the next thing? Yeah. You know, and it's the next thing. And that's what the phone offers us is the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, and the next thing. Mm-hmm. And it could be something that is an understanding, like new information that you could then use to get to something, mm-hmm. or it can be itself like approval, like, Oh, someone likes something or they noticed me or whatever it is. Um, and then there's the very, and then there's maybe the more, like, that's all, it's all illusory. It's all mediated. It's all artificial. It's artificially like doled out to you and constructed in a certain way. Um, Does uh, your brain understand that? Of course we don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, you can, you can, you can tell yourself that, but I think we respond in an, in, in a, it's evolutionary, right? It's very deep. Mm-hmm. There's something very, so a very basic evolutionary thing about a screen is that we have, we evolved to be aware of threats and rewards in our environment. And there's part of us that's always kind of like scanning, like situational awareness because the screen is bounded. There's a constant feeling of things moving out of the way that you can't, a place to that you can't see. Mm. So the bound is almost like a window and it's something where, Oh, I want to look because it's going to move out of frame and I won't know what's there. Yeah. And so that, that in itself is kind of, um, keeps you going, keeps you hooked. Mm -hmm. How has it changed our attention span? Um, especially with moving from a post, something static Mm -hmm. to now these short stories, the videos, the videos. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, before I have, um, ADD and I like, I don't take any medication or anything for it because I've learned because I use it to my advantage in certain things. I think there's something beautiful about having a mind that kind of goes and looks all over. But I find that though, like Snapchat and Instagram stories, I'm like, Oh my God, I feel like this is making my attention span shorter and shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, my first experience, I remember, I, I remember it was so quick. I couldn't figure out what had happened. And now 15 seconds. I feel like I get a whole life story in 15 seconds. That's crazy. That's really crazy. Have you looked into that or? Yeah. So there's a, there's a study, um, that I call the mouse, the mouse in the casino study where they took a little baby mouse and they made it watch mouse TV for like, Oh my gosh. 16, 18 hours a day for its entire infancy. What's mouse TV? Well, mouse TV (laughs) is more like a casino. It's like flashing lights, loud noises. Wow day and night, unpredictable, mm-hmm. like movement, like exactly like a casino, like you mm-hmm. should see the video. So then they, then they gave the mouse a break. The mouse went through like its adolescence this way. And then they gave the mouse a break. Then they brought it back and they did something called the open field test, which is an, you put a mouse into an unfamiliar, like large open environment and like a field and a normal mouse will hit, stick to the perimeter and sort of cautiously explore, but be in a place where they have like some shelter. And these mice, just zigzagged all over the place. They had like this like total lack of inhibition. They couldn't really make plans and they had, they were so heedless Mm. of danger because something had, so whatever that is, it's loss of inhibition, um, inability to kind of make a plan and form a plan and continue a plan. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, what I would love to see is if they like release, how would that mouse actually do in the wild? Because, yeah. uh, you know, first of all, it seems like an owl would come and get that mouse immediately because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it can't discriminate anymore between what is important and what isn't. Mm-hmm. But the lack of caution, I think also is really interesting because what is caution? Like, yeah. is that from fear? Is it from, you know, um, being aware of things, you know, they, they often find that like people who are big thrill seekers, like, bungee jumpers and people who jump out of airplanes mm-hmm. and things they're actually naturally extremely calm people mm-hmm. their baseline is like they're people with like their resting heart rate is like below 40 and yeah I've heard that that's so interesting I forgot about that yeah where it's like it seems like the people like the the constant bombardment like if you get people who become very um attached to video games for example like in other ways, they'll be very sedentary mm-hmm. and they're, they're not getting other kinds of stimulation or maybe it could be that their baseline is too low. It's hard to say though. It's complicated. That's interesting to compare, um, jumping out of an airplane with getting your stimulation from video games. I never even thought to put that together. That's so I mean, it's crazy. adrenaline, yeah. right? But then it's like, but some people need things to be really calm and something, but you, your body kind of shuts down. Actually, this is something with little kids as well, because a lot of people find the studies have shown that kids that are harder to calm and not as well regulated, they end up watching more TV. And it's not because the TV made them that way. It's because they don't calm down easily. And the hyperstimulation, the focus stimulation of the television kind of, it shuts things down for them. It helps Mm. them pay attention and it helps them outwardly. They're quiet inside. They might be being bombarded. Yeah. And they're, you know, something, one thing that people ask me a lot is like, why does my kid get so upset when the TV is off or the, the app is shut off? And you might feel that yourself sometimes, like if mm-hmm. it's taken away, although mm-hmm. most adults, it never, it never happens to us, but, yeah. um, because you might've turned to the screen in a hard moment and you're burying your emotion underneath that stimulation. And then when you take the stimulation away, the emotion just pops up even stronger. And do you think of that as a good thing? Um, it's very interesting. So if take people on the autism spectrum, for example, mm-hmm. um, some of the doctors I talked to said, you know, so people on the autism spectrum have, are very attracted to screens. That's in general. No, research shows okay. this. Um, some doctors say that's terrible because they need to be doing their therapy and they need to be practicing connecting with people face to face and yeah. they can't be hiding behind the screen all the time. Yeah. It's the opposite of what they need. And some, some people are like neurodiversity advocates and they say, look, this is the accommodation that I need. And this, this is something that helps me cope. It helps me recognize faces or it just helps me retreat because I, I can't always be with other people and be the way that you want me to be. Mm-hmm. So is it a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah. It's just what works for them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to label good or bad, but I guess our opinions on it are. Well, I think we're in a place where people feel like they do need to start making choices Mm -hmm. that we, we let these things creep into our lives and become very central. And now it's time to start being very conscious about them. Mm -hmm. I want to go, um, a little dive in a little bit about the test, your other book sure, and just talking about standardized testing and how, um, just how you were inspired to write that book. Why? And sure. Yeah. uh, Thanks for asking. So, Mm -hmm. um, I was really interested in, I I have been covering all these innovations in education and I came across again and again, kind of the, the stopping point of like, oh, we would love to do this, but we have to do the tests. And so I just got really curious about why did these tests become so important in our schools and why are we wrapping everything around them? And I uncovered this crazy backstory, which was that 
the whole notion of IQ and the idea that we can scientifically test intelligence is um, it's historically intellectually related to eugenics and actually like very deep pseudoscientific racist mm -hmm. theories. So the notion of intelligence as a bell curve, the idea that, um, you know, that it's something that we can measure in this specific way. A lot of the people that put that forward um, in the 19th century were kind of connected to this idea that, you know, that you could measure people's brains and skulls mm -hmm. and that different, you know, different genotypes had different yeah. levels. Of, and it was used to discriminate. You know, it's always been used to discriminate. And, and so it's no, and then today we talk about the achievement gap, like it's this set thing that because people are from a certain racial background or because they're poor, that they have lower scores on these kinds of tests. And it's like, no, it's because the tests were always designed this way wow. that the outcomes are like this. It's all predetermined. Mm -hmm. And the only, there is no achievement gap. There's only an opportunity gap and there's only a gap in access to understanding of, you know, understanding of yourself and resources and things that people need in order to, you know, become the type of person that does well on a test. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. It's pretty, I mean, it's pretty crazy. Like, um, did you know that before writing the book? No, no, wow. no. I was just like, where did this stuff come from? And Stephen Jay Gould, who's one of the best science writers who ever lived, um, actually wrote a whole book about it too. It was called the mismeasure of man. And he was very angry because he was like, um, not only did, were the people who created, uh, standardized testing, not only were they eugenicists, but they also were people that created some of the foundational social science techniques like the whole idea of a bell curve and the whole idea of mm -hmm. like basics of statistical analysis yeah. were created in order to discriminate against people. Like that's, that's just kind of the reality. So him as a paleontologist, he's like, as a paleontologist, I use this stuff, these tools, these basic statistical tools, and they were created a hundred years ago so that people could be racist. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It was like here in this country, in England, mm -hmm. in America, in mm -hmm. England and America. Yeah. Wow. Uh, the Stanford Binet, the um, Alfred Binet, he's a little bit of an exception. The, the IQ test, he had a little bit of a different purpose behind him, but um, but the bell curve was, yeah. And how, what does that look like now? We're still using standardized testing. It looks like- uh, Do schools get paid for higher scores? Um, Is that right? There's a state account, there's federal and state system that- states and districts have to give the tests to all the kids, 95% of the kids and the schools that are doing the worst have to be targeted for certain kinds of intervention. Um, the payment, the, the performance pay has been something that's gone in and out. There was a huge scandal, scandal in Atlanta, mm. um, which was seen as being like an exemplary district until they figured out that they were just lying and cheating on all the tests. Oh my gosh. And there's going to be a movie with Tana Hasi Coates. No and way. And Ryan Coogler is directing it. What? Yes. When is that coming out? It's, it's in the works. That's it's so like, It's going to be the triumph. I'm really excited. My dream is that they'll call me to consult. But oh like, my gosh. it's all about what happened in Atlanta because it was this all black, all black district yeah. with um, this amazing um, superintendent. And she was being celebrated because the the test scores were so great. And then it turned out that they were having erasing parties and erasing and changing all the kids' score books. I would do the same. And just lying to the, and just lying and just lying no, about it. And every crazy. and the conspiracy like went, you know, across the whole district. Wow. Yeah. So how okay, so how has it changed now? Nothing's changed. <sighs> There's a little more wiggle room in the federal in the new federal law. We no longer have like an uh, a clear a uh, thing of like shutting down schools when they don't make the test scores because 
this law, the, the No Child Left Behind law had this insane thing that it was going to be all, everyone would be proficient by 2015, hmm. which was like, that's like saying, what does that like, mean? Yeah. well, exactly. So what it means is it was like, you know, if you think of like, uh, you know, ab- below average, average, above average, you know, it's like, well, the new, the new three stars is five stars. So everyone will be five stars by 2015. Oh my and it's like, God. well, that's never going to happen because that's not how things work. That's yeah. not how ratings work. Yeah. Somebody's got to be in the middle. Somebody's going to be in one end. So, yeah. <laughs> so that was never going to work. So they, they changed that law. There's a little more wiggle room, but the kids are still taking the tests. They're still putting tons of resources towards them. They're still really low quality tests. They still don't test the things that employers say that they need and that you know, parents think are important, that kids think are important, that teachers think are important. They don't Mm -hmm. test creativity, collaboration. They don't test, you know, your technical skills to a certain extent. They don't test um, any of the things that you think would be important for Mm -hmm. to be in the workplace or just to live a happy, fulfilled life. They're not on these tests. Teachers aren't getting rewarded for the things that are really important. And everything that they teach is dictated by these. It's, it's, it's pushing it. It's mm-hmm. pushing it. I mean, teachers understand, and I think principals understand and parents understand the need to teach more things, but it's hard to put fit stuff in. Yeah. And they call it fitting stuff in. Even now, you know, there was a great, I did a story last week about after Parkland, mm-hmm. some of the great, the biggest experts in the country on school climate kind of came out to say schools could be places where people take care, better care of each other and where they're safe because they listen and they understand each other and people need these things. It goes back to being, we're human beings, mm-hmm. right? Kids need to learn how to be a person who cares for others and is gentle and is listened to. Most, a lot of our kids are coming into school with trauma, yeah, with hard emotional situations. They need teachers to understand them. This is core. It's not, it's not the fringe. It's not what you do after math and English. It's what mm-hmm. you do so you can do math and English. Yeah. And so the whole job of schools, I think it needs to be looked at in a really different light. Yeah. I think um, that's such a good point because I, I've been thinking a lot about homeschool and, um, and I find that I really believe like this, this is where you go learn social skills. This is where you go find friends. And, um, but then there's, I wonder how technology has played a role in what's going on in the schools and how they're interacting. I mean, it's tricky, right? I think, um, it's different at different ages. I would say generally the promise has not been borne out. It hasn't like magically transformed schools. There's mm-hmm. no silver bullet. So you can't yeah. really expect that. Mm-hmm. There are some schools where tech is being used in a way that's imaginative, that's helping kids to be independent learners or collaborate or just express their ideas in different ways. Um, once the kids are getting their own devices towards the end of middle school, high school, it's very disruptive. I mean, every school is struggling with it. Every yeah. teacher is struggling with it. Things that are conversations that are often that used to be just in the halls or the cafeteria, they're following kids around and, and they're taking them home with them. Mm-hmm. So all the drama that you used to be able to leave by your lockers and go home for the weekend and like your mom bakes you cookies and you can forget yeah. about what's going on at school. Now it's like right there. And if you're home, like say you're like a kid who's home on Friday night and you're like scrolling through Instagram and you see every Everyone party out. that's going on without you and you know that you're not invited. Aww. It's devastating. You know, and then for the kids that are at the parties, they're like, oh, do I look hot enough? Like, are there enough likes on this picture of me? Mm-hmm. Like, does someone, you know, did my crush like it or not? And why are they not following me? So it's just like, this. it just amplifies. I feel like it just is taking everything about being a teenager to a, a whole other level. Yeah. I wonder how it affects them differently than adults. 
I, I, we talk about this a lot. I've, I've thought about this a lot, how we know life before yeah. this and how when you're raised with it, I, I just wonder the difference. Well, there's a lot of different dimensions to that, right? Yeah. So, um, is it know, more surface level? <sighs> what do you mean? Can you find depth as a child if that's what you're around constantly? And That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that there's... I mean, what I was going to say is that um, kids have developing brains. So almost anything that you introduce to them, it's going to take a stronger hold, right? Mm-hmm. If you give, you know, if you give a child like alcohol or tobacco before they're, before puberty, it's going to be really bad for them. And if you give it to them during puberty or after, like, even so, like the chances of having a problem are magnified because that's what their brain learns to get used to, you know? Um, and so anything that's really compelling that you introduce to a kid very young, it, they will, co- their brains will co-evolve with that kind mm-hmm. of stimulus. Um, on the other hand, you know, I talked to a guy who has a, a virtual reality lab at NYU and he was super excited because he was like, kids love VR and the next Spielberg or Hitchcock of VR, like they're being born now because they're going to speak it as a natural language. It's not going to be something that's acquired. Mm-hmm. It's going to be just their medium. And if you look at something, I'm going to bring up like the Parkland yeah. again, these teenagers that they're expressing themselves with such grace and they take advantage, they take Full, fully for granted the fact that they can have a global platform. It's theirs for the taking because mm-hmm. they know how to express themselves. It's breathtaking to mm-hmm. watch. Do you, do you think there's a correlation between technology and all the shootings? Well, um, it's been talked about for generations, um, going back to you know television and then video games have been with us for decades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, first of all, it's worth pointing out that there are countries around the world that have the same media diets as us that don't have this problem. So that's true. The environmental hazard to point to, there's a number one environmental hazard to point to, and it's not games, it's guns. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, there certainly are researchers who are um, in the mainstream who say, yes, exposure to violence has effects on our brains. Um, the most common effect is desensitization, mm-hmm. just not feeling it the same way when you see it in real life. And the second most common effect is anxiety and um, fear. Mm-hmm. And then after that, there are some children who will respond with aggression to aggression mm-hmm. um, with an imitation. So, you know, th- there you have it. I mean, I think that there's, um, it's always a complex thing to study. Like there was a, a study I was reading about recently where they wanted to know if there were violent movies, did that lead to more crime? And so they did an analysis of like, all the movies that were playing certain weekends and then how much violence was in the movie and then how much crime was in that, that city. And here's what they found. Can you guess what they found? No, I think yes, but on this, on the weekends where a very violent movie was playing, there was less violence. Wow. And the, the, just the, the connection that they discovered was that the young boys who might be like the ones who would demographically be committing violence they would go to those movies. So they'd be off the streets. Oh my god! They'd be off the streets that evening and they weren't drinking because there's no alcohol at the movie. Mm -hmm. So they go to see Top Gun or Rambo and they're not having a drink. So they're off the streets from eight to 10 and then 10 o'clock comes around, they're sober. They have to, like they have a couple more hours to get drunk. On the weekend when Bambi's playing, they start drinking at five (laughs) o'clock 
and then they're ready to rumble. Yeah. So it's complicated, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, the fact is that being a teenager has gotten a lot safer in the last few decades as they're spending more time. They're not driving as much. Mm -hmm. They're not having as much sex. They're not drinking as much. They're not using as many drugs. Um, And homicide rates have gone down too, Mm -hmm. actually. Homicide rates have gone down a huge amount. Wow, I didn't know Across the whole country and among young men, Mm -hmm. among teenagers. Gang violence is down, except in in very specific parts of the country. So- you know, nobody ever says, oh, are violent video games causing the downturn in violence? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could be all the kids playing Call of Duty. And let's, you know, you don't want to under undercut the, the, it makes people feel uncomfortable. And certainly there are some kids who have a pathological relationship to those games and it's a social ill by its own right. But, but, but it's a very complicated mm-hmm. context. Talking about desensitization, I can't say it today. Um, I think about that a lot because we, like a few years ago, I was on a trip with my dad and he was just admiring this waterfall that we were next to. He's just like, wow, wow. And I was thinking, I don't even want to get out of the car. Like, I don't even think it's beautiful, but like, it's not. It's not anything I've never seen before, but it's really because I've seen photos of everywhere that you could go to around the world, right? We've seen it all. And we're just not as amazed as like if it was the first time your eyes saw something and it's so crazy. Think about, I've never been to the Grand Canyon and I just think of myself going there and I get sad thinking how un, I mean, unimpressed, not, I'm always impressed by nature and um, even like a little flower on a walk it will impress me, but I just think about the desensitization a lot. I think that's a really good point. And I think emotionally too, it's really easy to get um, just tapped out in terms mm-hmm. of like anything and everything that you'll see in social media. And it's all to the extreme. I mean, it's mm-hmm. kind of like a thing where it's like, if you text somebody and put a period at the end, they'll be like, what's wrong with you? Are you yeah. mad? Yeah. <laughs> it's like you have to put five exclamation points, totally. even, in, even in a work email, I have to mm-hmm. put exclamation, exclamation points on everything I say I know. so that people will like, so I don't have like resting bitch phase of email. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you just have to do like this, um, Go incredible performance of emotion mm-hmm. and the extremities there. And I think, that's something, yeah, I think our, us and our kids, like we have to watch out for that in our relationships because mm-hmm. we don't want to undercut like the, the actual quiet moment. Mm-hmm. And going back to art of screen time, yeah, kind of, we, ta- we dabbled yeah. in, but I, I'm curious in there, I'm, I'm assuming it's all about finding that balance, right? So as far as adults go and some of us, I mean, some of us, we spend all day on your computer because that's what you have to do now. It's part of your life. So what are your recommendations for that? When, how to find that balance? So I use the, um, I adapted the Michael Pollan, um, slogan and I say, enjoy screens, not too much and mostly Mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. Um, and enjoy means like, what is the purpose every time you go to your technology or to a certain site or an app, like just give yourself a mini, a mini meditation, a second Mm -hmm. to say like, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. And that will really be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Studies show that, for example, in social media, the people who are posting and commenting and responding are happier than the people who are just scrolling Mm -hmm. and liking. So when you're putting something out there, the chances of having a positive experience are much higher. I like that. Um, Yeah. And I think it's just, it's also true. It's like, well, if you're not there to say something or 
if you're not satisfied, say something or listen to some somebody, then why are you there? You're just mm-hmm. kind of like trolling. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Just like a yeah. passerby, whatever. Or yeah. trying to get in it. So creativity, discovery, connection. Mm-hmm. Those are your those are the major purposes of technology. And mm-hmm. if you're not, so what are the one of the three it should be, and you should know what it mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, not too much. Obviously, we have to be we're bodies as well as brains, and we have to be in the world and in space. And we have to be, you know, making sure that our eyes are okay and our backs are okay and our feet. Um, and, and, ta- and we have to eat, eat and nourish ourselves and not be on the screen when we're eating as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Um, and mostly together, because again, like we're doing it to connect. Um, I think you can, you can transform a, a, a disjointed conversation into a connected one just by like asking someone to share a screen with you and say like, Oh, what are you looking at? Or, one thing that I recommend if you pick something up around your kids, but also around your partner is just to say why you're doing it. Like, Oh, let me just call the coffee shop and order the lattes for us. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to know, I need to get back to this person and then I'll tell you what it is. And just to create a little transparency and also accountability. Yeah. I love that. And I also, one other thing, I'm sure it's different psychologically if you're focusing on your emails and you're in work mode rather than a, the social media aspect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you, well, listen, if you're answering emails, hopefully you're in a space where you can concentrate and be yeah. doing that because mm-hmm. it's work and you mm-hmm. need to be doing that. Social media is a little bit, it's tricky because for a lot of us, it's both. Yeah, it can be work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So figuring out what that is for. And then again, like, what's my purpose? I like having different networks for different things mm-hmm. too. So my last question for you is what your hope and intention is for this book and what your message is to get across why you wanted to write it. Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. (sighs) The message I want to get across is that, uh, we as parents can all do better. We have responsibility and we have an opportunity to transform the conversation around technology and the role it plays in all of our lives. Um, we have, moral power because we're shaping the next generation. So I think as parents, we have a moral power that we can use here. We can use it to talk to the industry, to our partners, if we have them, to our children and also to ourselves. And, and my hope for this book is that it's part of that conversation. I'm getting amazing feedback from parents all over the world who are ready to really think about this and not just to dismiss it or just to say, oh, I'm a bad mom. I don't do this well, but to actually think carefully about what kind of technological digital space they want their children to grow up in. And so I'm just really excited to see what happens as a result of that conversation. Me too. Thank you so much for sharing your work. And it's, it just seems going chronologically through your work. They're all so timely and um, I'm sure it just takes a long, obviously a lot longer and a lot of research before it comes out. So you're really at like the cutting edge and Thanks. I really appreciate that. So not that it's not good to be at the cutting edge, but just, I just appreciate you investigating and looking and sharing and spreading the word and also doing it so gracefully and open-mindedly. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to get to talk to you. Yes, yeah, fun. Cheers. Cheers. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a comment or review, and share with your friends. I'm always reading our comments and love hearing from you, so keep in touch, and I'll see you next time.